The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Great to have you all along with us tonight. We've got a, a return to our roots tonight. We're going to be talking about ghosts, ghost stories, strange stories, weird stories with a returning guest, James Willis. Uh, was here last time, I think, I'm trying to remember when it was. It may have been November. I don't I don't quite remember. However, when he was here, we were talking about the Paul McCartney is dead. Um, I was going to call it a conspiracy. It really wasn't a conspiracy. It was rumors, and it was supposedly supported by uh, hints in Beatles music and on their album covers and all that stuff. And uh, Paul, uh, James Willis talked uh, talked to us about it all pointed out the clues, and it was good fun. It was a lot of fun. But he also has written a ton about hauntings and legends and lore. He's got books such as Central Ohio Legends and Lore, Ohio's Historic Haunts Investigating the Paranormal in the Buckeye State, The Big Book of Ohio Ghost Stories, Haunted Indiana, Haunted America. These are books that he contributed to. Weird Encounters, and and much, much more. So we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of some great ghost stories, some great uh, reported hauntings, also some legend and lore that might not be necessarily ghost-related. And that's what we'll have uh, have uh, uh, James talking about tonight. Looking forward to that. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our Twitch channel. Both of them can be found by searching my name, J.V. Johnson. And also make sure that you uh, join up or uh, follow us on, on social media too, particularly Facebook. It's where we do most of our posting. So uh, we've got a great night ahead of us. So let's get started. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tonight we've got a great conversation. Returning guest James Willis uh, will be talking to us not about Paul McCartney this time. We're going to be talking about ghosts and legends and strange stories. James is no stranger to any of this. And uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Jim, when was when did we have you on last? Was it like November? I'm trying to put the dates together. I'm trying to remember, and as of late, I can't even keep track of the days of the week. So uh, I don't remember. It was a little while ago. I, I do remember the Paul McCartney bit, though. That was that was a blast. But I think I was on another time after that as well. We had you. Okay, I, I care. I know you've been on a few times. Uh, I thought Paul McCartney was the last one, but who knows? Either way, it's great to have you back. Um, looking forward to this conversation because, as you know, kind of the ghost thing is kind of the nucleus of what we do here. Yes, yes, and it's something that's near and dear to my heart, and it's what got me into this entire world of weirdness. So I'm looking forward to it as well. You've been into this, as you put it, world of weirdness for about 30 years, maybe even a little bit more than that. How did you, how did you develop a curiosity for it? I mean, I think, I know personally I have my own little story of my childhood that made me very curious about this stuff. You must have one, too. I've got several, and I, I like to bl- say that I blame my parents for making me the, the weirdo that I became. But um, 
I usually just say that because they, um, I was born and raised in the Hudson Highlands of New York State, and it was very close to all sorts of weirdness. I mean, it's it's deeply entrenched in this Dutch sort of legends and folklore. Um, it was very close to Terrytown, the setting for Washington Irving's uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That's right. Uh, during the 80s, there was a huge um, UFO flap that happened up there. So I, I was I was surrounded by weirdness, even outside of my immediate family. So I, I just, it seemed normal growing up to be like, okay, let's go out and uh, look for UFOs or, you know, let's go up into the, the mountains where supposedly Rip Van Winkle, you know, had his long nap. So it was it was kind of in my blood from a very early age. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Rip Van Winkle and, of course, uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, those stories, you know, I grew up in Oneonta, New York, not too far from where you're talking about. Yeah, and yeah. and we had all those stories being told to us as kids. And, of course, you know, some of them are just classic literature at this point. But um, it, it seems like that area, that Catskill Mountain up the Hudson River from New York City, as you get close to Albany, New York, uh, it's just rife with legend and, and mystery and uh, folklore and all that stuff seems to come together there. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and I tell people, if you've never been to the area, just drive through it. Um, I'll never forget the first time I took my, my wife on a drive up there and she was like, I totally get where you're coming from. This just feels weird. And for me, it was like you said, I, I grew up hearing all these stories like about the headless horseman. And I even had a teacher that tried to uh, prove to us that the Headless Horseman was real. She took us to Terrytown for a field trip oh, wow. and showed us the names of the characters in the uh, the cemetery. Oh, wow. I found out later that, of course, that Washington Irving, I guess you could say, uh, borrowed yeah. some of the names yeah. off the tombstones. <laughs> but at a very early age, that led me to say, okay, well, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is not a true ghost story. What are the true ghost stories? And so that was a neat way for me to sort of get inducted into the idea of like doing research and looking for things like that. And and then, of course, in the mid 80s, a little movie called Ghostbusters came out. <laughs> and when I realized that there was a little article that I read that was a review of Ghostbusters, and it actually said that some of the equipment the Ghostbusters were using were based on actual equipment parapsychologists use. And at that point, I was I was hooked. <laughs> That's pretty cool because, um, you know, when we're talking about, I'm, I have to do the math quickly here. I guess 30 years ago would be, gosh, 1990 now, which is incredible to me because it seems like 30 years ago should be 1970 if I were doing my, <laughs> judging by my life. But either way, uh, I'm not going to even talk about that. But yeah, to go back into that period, when we get back into 1980 and the mid-1980s, ghost hunting as we know it now was really rather unknown, and it was very, very niche, and it was uh, quite rare that people, if they did it, would even admit it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, I mean, I was involved with, I guess you would call it group ghost hunting back then, but you're exactly right. It didn't really have a name. It was just that we would go out looking for ghosts, and it was very, back then, you know, now I feel like I'm like a grandpappy or something. But back in my day, there was <laughs> I know, no internet. I know, but I know. If, if you wanted to look for ways to find ghosts, you sort of had to look back to, you know, the, the, the OGs of ghost hunting, like the, the Harry Prices and 
You know, yeah. Hans Holzer, who was somebody that I looked up to, but he didn't really have equipment per se. He just basically wanted a medium, and that's all that he worked with. And, and then, and he might uh, have a camera. Was, he might have a camera along. He might have a camera along, but you know that that may have been as far as it went. Yeah, exactly. And then Harry Price was doing things with with Borley Rectory, of course, but but he was using things which are kind of interesting. But he was using like bowls of mercury <laughs> and if the mercury moved <laughs> it meant that there was something walking around in the room or he was putting powder on the floor to see if footsteps would you know uh, or footprints would appear so there were it was very archaic as to what you were looking at i mean i remember the very first evp recorder if you want to say it, that i had was, was literally an old reel to reel oh wow that we would use. Really so, so it was yeah i'm really dating myself now, i'm the but, same way um but the, that was where you, you know you had to start i mean we were taking polaroids <laughs> and using things wow. which was i kind of love when the advent of digital cameras came around because you know you had to develop film or the polaroids were a very expensive to use so in a way, being in it for so long, I've, I've kind of – a lot of the equipment is now a little bit more accessible. Of course, there's now fancier things that are even more expensive. But it is interesting that as the times change and ghost hunting has become more accessible, that the equipment has as well. You know, I do know that, uh, you know, the whole reel-to-reel thing, a lot of these early, you know, we, we go back to some famous ghost cases like the Enfield case or even the Amityville case – uh, some of these really high profile, the conjuring case, uh, where there were some investigators involved, um, they were still kind of primitive in their approach by our standards today, but they were certainly as sincere and as serious. And, and a lot of them did use reel to reel recorders, not so much to catch EVPs, but to record whatever sessions they were having. Exactly. Exactly. So and you're right. It was a lot of what they were doing was where now the equipment is to determine if there is ghost activity. Much of the equipment that we were using, you know, back in the day, you're exactly right, was used to just sort of document what was taking place during the investigation. So as you, um, and I'm going to fast forward just for a second here, but then I want to go back to the earlier days here. But as you contrast the way the attitude that people have now about what we call ghost hunting and the attitude that people have now about actually talking about ghost encounters or other hauntings or even even other paranormal phenomena whether it's bigfoot or ufo have, have you noticed a stark change a stark difference in people's attitudes oh oh definitely it's i mean it's sort of even this the general belief has sort of ebbed and flowed over the years but i mean i have noticed that very early on when I, you know, so starting when I really seriously got into it in the, the 80s, most of the people, if they got to the point where they wanted to talk to someone about it, they really just wanted proof that they weren't crazy. So right. it was, they right. were more open to the idea if you came in and you did find a rational explanation, they were okay with that. It was that they just wanted answers. Um, now, it's kind of passed through where all of a sudden it became cool. So a lot of people that were contacting me in their heart already knew they had a ghost and they just wanted validation that there was a ghost there. Um, I've also noticed that recently, and I think a lot of that has to do that the, the, the ghost shows, some of them have gotten 
a bit more extreme, which I, I, I totally get because it, it's ratings. But I think that has kind of given a rise to I, I tend to get a lot more calls about um, demonic activity. It, that kind yeah, of, yeah. Is, mm-hmm. is this thing in the house? It's going to get me. It's right, evil. Right. And when you talk to them, it's not necessarily doing or acting evil, if you will. But it's more just that it's the fear of the unknown. But I think there is now a quicker leap to demonic or something being evil. Yeah, we've seen that, too. And, and I mean, and again, that has to be a result of what we're seeing on television. And as you pointed out, it, you know, we have to remember something. TV is about money and it's about ratings. And sometimes yeah. when you've got an entrenched ghost hunting show doing rather well, the only way you can get attention for your new ghost hunting show is to have something outrageous happening or something, you know, sensational. And uh, so then you've got all these shows out trying to outdo each other and you kind of get this, uh, you get this circus effect. And I think we saw some of that. And I think that's part of the reason why the show's kind of died down a bit. There's been a resurgence in the last year or so, but they kind of, you know, kind of lost their, uh, their moment in the light, limelight for a while anyway. Yeah, I think that's definitely true because exactly for what you pointed out, I think they almost got pushed to such an extreme where they were unintentionally comical. And so <laughs> yeah. I think they're now it, it's sort of this kind of return to the grassroots sort of going in and looking for things as opposed to that I think is one of the biggest things that's surprising to me is that I, I was never scared of ghosts in general. I've been in situations where I felt uneasy, but I was never actually, I never thought a ghost was going to get me in general. But it seems that at some point in ghost hunting history, it made a sharp turn to where the ghosts were suddenly getting you. And I think going back to, I think that was part of the reality TV shows is that you kind of had to up the ante that they weren't just doing a regular investigation, which even though I love them, they are incredibly boring, (laughs) but I love what I do. Yeah. But to the mass audiences, they're kind of boring. So I think adding this level of fright or nervousness or what's going to happen, is someone going to get attacked, certainly helps with the rating, but it takes you into a totally different realm. You know, it's not really, it's more TV than reality, I guess, at that point. You know, we've had people on the program that have talked about their personal experiences where they have legitimately felt attacked, possessed, harmed in some way, in some cases, some physical harm, many cases, emotional or spiritual or psychological harm. But I need to put that aside just for a second, because beyond their stories, you don't often, and I don't, I'm trying to think of the the only time I've ever uh, seen a newspaper headline that says, you know, a person harmed by ghost in, you know, unless it's a tongue in cheek article, you know, this, this isn't the kind of thing that, that happens all the time. Ghosts don't seem to be necessarily malicious. They may, I mean, we don't know what their intentions and their motivations are. Maybe there is an element of trying to get your attention or maybe even frighten you a little bit. I don't think so, but maybe, but certainly the harm thing, it's rare if at all. Yeah, I I would have to agree with that. And I like to subscribe to the the theory that if you were a not a very nice person when you were alive, your ghost is probably going to be a little bit surly as well. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're evil or demonic. You're just a, a surly ghost, shall we say. I mean, the example that I normally give is um, when my father passed away, my, my mom had passed away several years prior to that, and we were 
getting ready to fix up and sell uh, the, their family home, which was the only house that my parents had ever known. They built it. It was the only house. And I thought to myself that, you know, I hope that my dad's spirit is at rest and it's not haunting the house because if he does haunt this house, heaven help the people who move in if they don't keep the remote control on the left-hand side of the recliner and keep it tuned to ESPN2 24 hours a day. Because if they don't, and my dad's ghost is here, the remote's going to fly across the room. You know, the TV's going to switch channels because that's the way my dad wanted it when he was alive. You could say he was a cranky guy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what he's doing is demonic or evil. It's just kind of what you were saying. It's just he's trying to make contact. This is how it was, and this is the way I want it to continue. If you have blood coming from the walls or green ooze <laughs> dripping out of the wall, you know, then maybe you've got a you've got an argument for some kind of demonic activity. But beyond that, it's probably just some activity that's being misunderstood. However, you must have seen, and maybe you've even experienced it yourself. What about people who get scratched? I mean, the, the hair tugging, the 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 brushing of the face, that kind of stuff. I don't count as anything malicious. But what about people who get scratched? That happens a lot. Yeah, it does. And it's it's never happened to me um, personally. I have been around people that said that they were scratched and the scratches did look real. They did look like they were real scratches. In one case, it did look like it was sort of getting ready to ooze a little bit of blood. But yeah. where that came from, you know, I, I don't know. And the skeptical side of me says, well, if we're going to say that that's a ghost or an evil spirit or whatever it is, then the skeptic in me says, then that means it has to have enough force or mass or density or whatever you want to call it to be able to inflict that. How come none of the equipment around us even budged a little bit? So again, I'm, I'm willing to accept that we might not be using the right pieces of equipment to identify or detect that sort of change, but I'm always trying to kind of balance I guess, reason and the pseudoscience with the incredible, because it's very easy for me to go, well, that's totally cool, but I I don't ever want to go to, and that has to be a ghost. Because for me personally, there's probably 150 different explanations I haven't hit on yet, rational ones, before I get to ghost. And before I ask my next question, I just want to kind of give an anecdote as it relates to this. I mean, how many times, and I know this happens to me all the time, I'll be working, you know, in my studio or even around the house or whatever. And then that later that evening, I look at my leg and I got, I've got a big scratch there. And I, you know, I know I did it while I was working, but I didn't notice it happening while I was working, you know, and if you're in, if you're walking around a basement or a dark house, you know, you could very easily get yourself a scratch or two and not recognize that it's happened until much later. Exactly. So which side of you, Jim, is the more dominant side? Is it the skeptic or is it the, uh, I don't know what, the, I don't want to say believer because I know that you have, you know, there's there's a belief that something is possible, but it's not necessarily always proven. Uh, is it the skeptic or the the optimist that, that what you're experience, experiencing is some kind of ghost activity? That seems to change on an almost daily basis, but I think in general... I refer to myself as a hopeful skeptic mm-hmm. because I I fully believe that there are things in this world that we don't fully understand. And I think that includes basically 
any sort of paranormal thing <laughs> out there, right. but definitely ghosts. So I do, I, I, am, I know for a fact that there are things in this world we, as much as we like to think we know everything about everything, we don't. But I also like to keep a healthy dose of skepticism around everything because I think in order for my personal belief is if I want to be taken seriously in this field, I have to be willing to admit that there's a lot of BS in this field right now. And there's a lot of unsubstantiated claims. There's a lot of just made up things. I mean, we used to just call them urban legends, but right. now a lot of urban legends are looked upon as being real. So I try to balance the two, but I think I am right now. I think I'm more hopeful than skeptic. But as I said, that, almost seems to change on a daily basis. And a great example of what you just described is the Slenderman phenomena, which we know the where the the origin of it. We know it started as a um a photo contest that was with a photo that was photoshopped for creepy pasta by a guy named I think Eric Knudsen. Um you know, mm -hmm. and he admitted this was just a you know, just a photoshopped photo. He made it look creepy and then it took on a whole life of its own. I mean, people claim to meet this 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 uh, slender man. People claim, well, we know that two girls actually almost committed murder because of slender man. Um this is an, this is an urban legend thing that's kind of taken on its own life. Yeah, you're exactly right and there's also like the rake is another one that's kind of spun out of I don't know if that actually the photo that people claim is the rake, the little golem looking guy, um, originally from Creepypasta. I think it did, but I could be wrong. But that's another example of something that was photoshopped and made up, but it took off. And people do believe that it is real. And again, I think a lot of that originally they were just urban legends. And it was something that, you know, when you were a teenager, you went out legend tripping and you would hear these scary stories about crybaby bridges or things like that. And you would go there almost as a rite of passage, but it wasn't so much that you really thought the stories were true. It was just that you were going out there to scare each other, you know, and you probably, you know, something did happen that was scary, but you didn't necessarily then go to, so therefore this story is real. I mean, the, the hook man and all of those classic sort of urban legends yeah. have been around forever, but they've never crossed over really into reality, I guess you could say. And I think that um, for those of us, again, you and I have talked about uh, uh, or hinted at our age <laughs> based on some of the things that we've experienced and some of the equipment that we used to call uh, state-of-the-art. Um, but, you know, with the, with the introduction of the Internet and, and social media, so many things can take off and develop a life of their own that, you know, it wasn't possible before when you didn't have these instant forms of uh, communication. Right. And I think, I think sadly what has happened is it's now become harder and harder for uh, real scientists, I guess you could say, to accept the paranormal. I mean, back in the 70s, you know, there were actually universities that were offering degrees in parapsychology. But I think what has happened is that Scientists in general like facts, and they, they don't like playing around in a field where faking things is so rampant. I mean, there's apps where you can just insert a ghost into your own pictures. I right, mean, right. and scientists don't like messing around with that. They like to do experiments and prove things. But when they've never had to, for most experiments that scientists do, they never have to look at the results and go, was this faked? And that's where I think the paranormal field kind of needs to 
get their stuff together, <laughs> shall we say. If we uh, take the clock back again to your kind of your roots when it comes to paranormal investigation and research, um, you had some involvement or some of one of your earlier involvements had something to do with satanic something. Tell me this story. Oh, the satanic panic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a that kind of fell out of the um, backward message sort of thing that I was doing for the whole Paul McCartney being dead. But there was in the early 80s, they started, there was this rumor that really started to catch on that people were, if you, uh, groups were putting hidden satanic messages in their records. And if you played it backwards, they would have all of these messages. And supposedly (laughs) they were going to, you know, open the doorway to Satanism. You know, it was subliminal, but all of a sudden you were going to become a Satanist and go out and, you know, do bad things to the neighbor's animals and stuff like that. Um, and that created what became known as the satanic panic. They were all, I mean, Geraldo was right, doing yeah. specials on it and mm-hmm. Oprah was. It was this idea that there was just this underground group of Satanists that were going across the United States, sort of corrupting the minds and the youths of America's teenagers. <laughs> Yeah, and and a lot of people uh, got caught up in that, and I think, and I even remember some reports about uh, people being concerned about kids that were playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, and yeah, you know, yeah. and there was witchcraft and all this stuff, and people just really got a little nutsy about all of this. I don't really remember any, you know, uh, walking around uh, the street in my town and seeing any beheaded animals or sacrificial altars or any of that. So I didn't see anything, but people were still talking about it. Yeah, and there, there was always, going back to that sort of urban legend, that friend of a friend that somebody knew about something, and there was a group that was, you know, dressing up in robes out in, in the, you know, in the cemetery, and most of it was kids. And I think it, the funniest thing was that they would, you know, these shows would show, oh, and look at this satanic symbol they found, like, written on a wall, and it was, I don't really date myself, it was the... uh the logo for the band Blue Oyster Cult, <laughs> right. you know, or it was, well, this, it was a pentagram that was, you know, or, you know, or they, they wrote, you know, Aussie rules or something. And that there was the connection between that. So it, it was interesting because throughout, I think since the dawn of time, teenagers have been doing things just to tick their parents off, you know, and I, most of this, that's all it was. It's just for whatever reason, this whole idea that there was something out there, again, in the record albums that was slipping through the parents, getting past them and directly into the, I guess you could say, the ear holes of their kids, just scared the hell, pun intended, out of America's parents at the time. And, you know, we're also talking about a time that uh, the the Amityville Horror film came out, what, in 1978? So it had a little bit of time to be digested into pop culture at that point. And then, you know, we had a whole slew of of horror films, slashers that were that were really coming into their own in the early 80s. So, you know, pop culture was also fueling this fire a bit. Yeah, oh, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, in, in general, if you look at it, we've kind of come full circle because pop culture, the ghost reality shows are actually influencing ghost hunting now. But back in the day, you're exactly right. It was popular music, you know, it was heavy metal, and it was also like the movies. I mean, you could go all the way back to things like, you know, like The Exorcist. I mean, all of a sudden after that movie came out, the Roman Catholic Church was besieged with, you know, calls about people who thought their family members or, you know, relatives and neighbors and stuff were possessed. 
And the same thing with the Amityville Horror, because after that came out, all of a sudden people are like, I think there's something in my house, but it's not a ghost. It's an evil spirit. Yeah, I also, uh, I know there are a lot of people who are beyond skeptical of the Amityville story, would say that uh, The Exorcist, the film, is what planted a seed in uh, in George uh, Lutz's mind to uh, to create what they call the Amityville hoax. But I'll leave that for other people to decide what they uh, what they believe or don't believe there. We're talking tonight with James Willis. Um, James is the author of many books. His website is strangeandspookyworld.com. It's all spelled out. Uh, James, I don't want to go through the whole list of books here, but you've got things like Central Ohio Legends and Lore and Ohio's Historic Haunts, the big book of Ohio ghost stories, but you go beyond Ohio with your stuff too, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, since I, uh, I've lived in Ohio since 1999 and sort of my writing career really took off in the early 2000s. Most of it is Ohio or, you know, central, the Midwest sort of base. But I've also worked on books like uh, Weird U.S. and Weird U.S. 2. And and my research has actually taken me across the United States. So it's kind of like have weirdness will travel. You know, you've written about weird things. You've written about strange things. You've written about ghosts and haunted things. Of those three categories, any one of those a favorite for you? I think I always go back to the ghosts and the hauntings. I mean, it's the the, the general weirdness is sort of when I kind of need a palate cleanser, every, you know, a weird palate cleanser, I <laughs> guess you could say. But the ghosts and the hauntings was 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 got me started way back when I was a little kid, and it's something that still fuels um, my desire. And I think that is all just based around the idea, as I said, there's something out there. You know, there's there's too many people who have had what they would term a ghostly experience. So something is going on now, whether or not that truly is someone's departed spirit, or whether or not it is just this bizarre. Uh, combination of atmospheric conditions, I don't know, but there is something there, and that's what really keeps me going. So, yeah, I think I always default back to the the ghosts and the hauntings. Is that where you started when you started writing? Did you start with uh, writing about ghosts? Yeah, yeah, it it was, um, although my my sister Donna has kept um, what I think was in first grade when I brought home what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it said that I wanted to be a scientist so I could find the Loch Ness monster. But, <laughs> um, I, but yes, by and large, the first thing that I started writing about was the ghosts and the hauntings. But oddly enough, which is why I fell into um, the weird U.S. series of books, is people look at them as being sort of travel books. My whole writing was I just needed to get these stories out of my head and on paper and I love telling stories, so whenever I would go to one of these haunted places, I just wanted to share it with people. So I just started writing them down, and then lo and behold, people were like, huh, that's interesting. You should put those in a book. When we start talking about the phenomena that we know as ghosts or hauntings, what do you think is really at play? Let's assume, assume for a minute that you're at a uh, an investigation and you confirm this is something supernatural. What do you think is happening here? Where is that energy coming from i don't know <laughs> and that's what and i'm one of those people i should have said that I, I actually don't look upon the phrase i don't know as a bad thing you know i i think too many people get in trouble when it, they, they don't want to say i don't know so they think that they should have an answer right i don't know what they are 
Um, and the other thing that is just frustrating and fascinating to me is the type of activity that I get or, or my organization gets on an investigation. It never seems to be the same, but it's stuff that after we look at all the possible things that we can come up with, was it this, was it this, and we're all left with, I don't know what caused that. Those are the things that are intriguing to me, yet they're very, very frustrating. I mean, we had a one of my favorite cases that we ever did was in uh, Lima, Ohio, where it was a, uh, um, a commercial-type building. It was an old house that had been converted over to a uh, the literacy council, which is where they, you know, they teach adults to kind of read and that sort of thing. And they had talked about hearing footsteps walking up and down the second store, uh, the second story hallway. And so we had video cameras, infrared cameras shooting either end of the hallway. So we had both sides of the hallway and we were sitting downstairs. We had microphones at either end of the hallway and we used studio microphones that are hardwired into a mixing board. They have shock mounts on them, so they're not moving. And while we're sitting down there, there's no one up on the second floor, but you hear, I believe it's eight footsteps that walk that start in the middle of the hallway, walk towards one camera, then turn, walk eight steps back, and stop. It was picked up by both microphones. Both cameras, though, show absolutely nothing in the hallway at the time. But what's the strangest thing is that when I give presentations and stuff, I always play this because it kind of messes with people's mind is some people hear what sounds like a man with boots walking on a wooden floor. A few people say it sounds like a woman in heels walking on a wooden floor. But what they always hear is a wooden floor. The second floor in that building is carpeted. Oh, wow. So, so those are the things where you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, you could easily go to, well, it's residual. And that would certainly make sense, but then you get it gets tricky because if it's residual, does that mean that something wasn't really exerting pressure on that floor to create it at the time? And obviously, if you pull the carpet up, there is wood underneath it. But what we recorded could not have come from that hallway, even though when we basically took the three point, we took four points and we triangulated it. Um, it's it's definitely coming from the middle of the hallway towards the one microphone and camera and then going right back. And there was no one on that floor. So those are the things, as I said, it's a good example of they're fascinating to me, but they're frustrating as I'll get out. <laughs> yeah, and I missed I missed how you introduced this part of the discussion. Did you say you recorded this or do you heard it when it was happening live? We were downstairs watching the cameras. We were actually taking a break. So we did, we did record it. It was recorded on both microphones, one at either end of the hallway, and technically it was recorded on both video cameras on either end of the hallway, though you don't see anything. The hallway's empty. So it's kind of an interesting thing is that when you, in the presentations I give, I will play the audio while I'm showing the video of the hallway, just because the mm -hmm. studio mics picked it up a lot clearer. So we did capture it both on audio and video. So you can definitely see there's no one there. 
Does that stuff give you a shiver up or down your spine? It gives me a little one, but it also is what drives me because I can't tell you how many times that we were like, whoa, I think we got something. And then you go back and you find a rational explanation and you're like, oh, man, it's, <laughs> it's borderline depressing. So, yeah, when, when I do find these things that we're like, I think we have something here, I get a bit of a shiver, but I also tend to get really excited over it. I um I get a certain satisfaction out of debunking things. I think that that's healthy. Um, but you're right. When you actually catch something that's anomalous that you can't come up with a rational explanation for, even though you can't necessarily say, "Yeah, that's a ghost," uh, it's a it's a it's pretty exciting. It is, and 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 I agree with what you said. I, I had said it earlier in that I think if someone wants to be taken seriously in this field, in order to put forward something where you you're saying, "I cannot explain this." You have to try to find rational explanations for everything and be willing to accept the fact that, yeah, I wasn't necessarily fooled with that, but when I first heard it or saw it, I was convinced it was something paranormal. I think that's healthy, and I think it's normal, and I think we're not all going to grow as a paranormal community until across the board we're willing to go, not real, wish it was, but take a look at this. (laughs) I can't explain this. All right, I'm going to give you another hypothetical here, and this one's going to even be more difficult than the last one I gave you. Let's assume for a minute you're you're on an investigation and you uh, confirm that there's something supernatural going on. And let's say it's somebody's personal residence, and the somebody that owns the house says, uh, you know, th- I think this is my my grandfather. And through some sort of testing, you're able to confirm that yes, in fact. This supernatural energy that you're experiencing here is in some way this person's grandfather. What then are we talking about? Are we talking about a life after death situation here? Are we talking about a residual energy that's been imprinted and somehow may even be manipulated by the living? Give me some ideas of what that could be. Yeah, I I think we would have to try to look at the type of activity that is actually taking place. Um, we've had a couple of instances that are very close to the example that you gave where what the people were reporting was um, the ghost or the figure was always doing the same thing and they were not interacting with uh, the living, shall we say. So, for example, they were always seeing the ghost of a woman and she was always in the living room, always over in one corner, and she would always walk to the other corner. Um, That, to me, tended to be more of a residual because it it seemed like it was almost watching a a film from a prior day so that it was like an imprint that was left behind. It never varied from what it was doing. We've had other instances where it seemed to be more like it was not necessarily an attachment, but it was something that was interacting with the living. So they were seeing it in different places in the home. It would sometimes, um, they would get EVPs as if it were trying to speak to them. It would look at them almost like it was acknowledging them or make hand motions towards them. So again, it seemed like it was more of a intelligent haunting. So I think we would have to take a look on a case-by-case basis as to what it was actually doing to try to determine if it was like a, a an imprint or if it was something that was 
as I said, more of an attachment or something more intelligent. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refine this question because I'm trying to get to a specific answer here. Uh, I, I'm not looking for a specific answer, but I'm looking for a specific question to be answered. If we can, in fact, verify you've got supernatural activity, verify that that activity is in some way a representation of the person's grandfather, as our example said, um, and it seems to possess some kind of intelligence, does that indicate there's life after death. Does that indicate to you, as someone who's looked at this stuff, and this might, this is just opinion, of course, uh, that maybe some of religious teachings actually have a validity now that we might not have ascribed to them before, because there is another, there is there is a quote the other side. What do you think? Give me some I, I, ideas. I got what you're saying. Yes, yes. For, for me personally, that would confirm it because if the person is deceased but you are getting evidence that suggests that that person is still in the now, as it were, right. that to me would be enough to su- to suggest that there is life or, or there is something after death. So, yes, I, that for me, that, that would be proof enough that you could confirm it, that if that, that person was no longer among the living, but you were still getting... <laughs> Right. evidence that it was kind of hanging out around the living, then yes, for me personally, I think that would that would prove for me that would be that there is something that happens after death, that, that it doesn't end. There is some sort of continuation. Do you think that's the hope? Do you think that a lot of people that go in search of proving or determining the existence of ghosts, that that's the hope? It gives, it gives people uh, some hope for when they close their eyes on this earth for the last time, there's actually something after it? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And I think you could even look back throughout history, and you will find that the sort of belief in ghosts or even spiritualism, if you look throughout history when there is sort of a resurgence of that, there's usually somewhere around there something bad, some sort of catastrophe that happened. I mean— the Civil War was a was a huge tipping point because people were sort of looking at it as like, what what has happened here? You know, what have we become? This can't be it. And so, yeah, I think people are almost looking at in, in much the same way I think that some they do with organized religion is that there is something after this. This is not all there is. It might be really bad what's happening now, or as you said, you know, they might be. Uh, going into the winter of their life and thinking, man, you know, I don't have much time left. I hope there's something afterwards. So, yeah, I, I, I believe that. It, and, I mean, there have been people who have had these, I call them two-bottle discussions, because you almost seem like two bottles of really good wine to get into these. But, <laughs> you know, there, there are all of these sort of um, instances where people who are dying, that they, you know, they start talking that they're seeing their relatives coming for them. And some oh, yeah. people look at that as that's just their brain shutting down, whereas other people look at that and being, no, that is proof that they are coming for them, that there is something more after that. So I I hope there's something after this, if for no other reason that, you know, I, I think that I kind of got gypped if this is it. But it's also the reason that I tell people I think we all have to live in the now, and just kind of be nice to each other while we're here, because we don't know what really comes after. That's what we're all looking to try to find. 
Someone in our chat room um, wanted to know what your thoughts were about orbs. What do you think about orbs? That's a great question. <laughs> it feels loaded, but it's a great question. <laughs> I I hate the term orbs because I think that has become the catch-all. Um, and when orbs first started being thrown around as being something, if you look at which is a fascinating rabbit hole to fall down, the history of spirit photography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when orbs started coming around, it matched up with the advent of the digital camera. That's right. You know, and, and because prior to that, there wasn't any idea of this sort of spirit energy. I mean, ghosts prior to that, if you had a photograph, it was a mist or it was a figure. It wasn't a ball of glowing light. Um, so most of the original orbs were basically dust particles, especially when you started getting into sort of the infrared, where you were getting the beams that were bouncing off these dust particles, um, rain, condensation, all sorts of things. Unfortunately, now, as I said, everything gets dumped into the idea that, oh, that's an orb, that's an orb. That being said, I like to refer to them as spirit lights, because we have seen things that were orb-like, but they were not dust particles. <laughs> they seemed to be emitting their own light, often to the point of creating a shadow on the ground. And so I do believe that there is some sort of, there is a paranormal aspect to what we collectively call orbs. I just think we need to try to separate the two. Again, go back to saying I think that these are just dust particles, but I'm not sure about this. I mean, what I tell people to do if they're like, well, I think I got some orbs on my phone, or I think I captured some with my camera, I tell them that since you're dealing with a digital camera or, you know, a phone, go ahead and test it. Go outside when it's raining and it's broad daylight, take a bunch of pictures, you know, and see if you get anything. Put the flash on, turn the flash off. I've even gone so far as to go out in the garage and kick up some dirt, take a bunch of pictures with a flash, and sort of create this cheat sheet so that if you do get something weird that you think is an orb on your camera, you can then compare it to things that you know are not ghostly. And so it's, again, just and the big thing is I tell people if you get an orb in a picture, keep taking pictures because we've had instances where – the orb all of a sudden changes into, which is kind of the strangest one we've ever gotten, is it started as an orb, but then it literally became this mist that filled the entire screen that was not visible to the naked eye. So anyway, my thought on orbs is I think there's something there. I just think that we need to sort of break them apart and acknowledge some orbs are just problems with digital cameras or infrared cameras, but there is something there. So look at what the orb is doing, how it's acting, and is it emitting its own light? And try to go from there. And that's the determiner for me. If it's emitting its own light, if it's self-illuminating, then there's something to it. But other than that, 99.99999% of these quote-unquote orbs, in my estimation, are dust particles or insects or something. And when the flash reflects off of them, a digital camera is very, very prone to picking them up. I mean, it's so easy to replicate to kind of prove this point. Just hit a pillow and take a picture, and you're going to see a thousand yep. orbs. 
if not a million. Exactly. So, um, yep. but if it's emitting its own light, and I've seen that kind as well, uh, that's a diff- completely, completely different story. We're talking tonight uh, with James Willis. We're talking about his work as a paranormal investigator. What's on your website, uh, James? Uh, Strangeandspookyworld.com. What can people find if they go there? Uh, there's all sorts of strange and spooky things there. There's, I mean, there is um, information on, we've got some Paul is Dead stuff there. There is got a whole bunch of stuff on investigations that I've done. Um, you can find out more about me, where I'm going to be giving appearances in the fall, hopefully. Um, a whole bunch of stuff. And probably the, the most interesting parts of the website is that I have a section that's called the, the Strange and Spooky Museum, which is just a, a whole collection of these somewhat random haunted items that people have given me over the years that I just take pictures of. And uh, I've done experiments with them. I have absolutely nothing to report on them to see if, you know, the haunted dolls move or anything like that. But there's information on that. And then probably something I'm most proud of is that I guess about three years ago, I got on a kick because growing up in New York, there was a crybaby bridge. And when I moved uh, to go to college in Georgia, I met somebody and they said, well, I'm going to take you out to the crybaby bridge. And I was like, that's in New York. And they were like, no, I'm going to take you to the real one. So he took me out there. And then when I moved to Ohio, when I was working on the book Weird Ohio, I found there were 13, oddly enough, crybaby bridges. And so I started about three years ago the Ohio Crybaby Bridge Project, where I'm up to 38 (laughs) bridges that are in just in Ohio that all claim to be the Crybaby Bridge. And so I've got pictures of all of them as I'm putting them up there. I tell the story behind it, the alleged ritual, what I call it, that you're supposed to do to make the, the baby cry, and, you know, just a lot of history about the bridges. I'm trying to spoiler alert, and haven't found, the crybaby bridge that actually has some historical documentation about a baby dying on or near the bridge in question. I have found ones where people have been murdered. <laughs> they're, they're adults. Um, but I have not found the crybaby bridge. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff on there. It's, it's a a fun little rabbit hole to follow. Yeah, I, I mean, you kind of explained it in your in your discussion there, but for people who don't know what a crybaby bridge is, explain that concept. Yeah, it's it's um, basically it's an urban legend, and it's it's a fun little story to tell. It it involves a bridge, or if you don't have a bridge, get an, uh, a train trestle, an overpass, just get something high off the ground, and put a baby and the mother up on the bridge. If you're not feeling creative, just say mom and a baby were up on the bridge, and then have something happen that causes the baby, sometimes the mother and the baby, to fall off the bridge. And then you create this ritual, which is, and if you go there at a certain time, usually it's midnight on Halloween, and you do something, you honk your horn three times or flash your lights three times, that you will hear a baby cry. Those stories, I've, I've traced them over, I think I'm up to like 42 of the 50 States have at least one crybaby bridge story. Um, for whatever reason, other than Ohio is a weird state, there seems to be the highest concentration of them there. But yeah, it's a basic story, an urban legend that I heard growing up. I just didn't realize there were that many of them around the United States. There are a bunch of these stories that seem to show up in every little community. It's kind of the same 
skeleton skeleton of a story, and it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, band-aided or scotch-taped to fit the local community or a local house or a local, you know, legend or something. Uh, but that happens pretty commonly, doesn't it? These stories get co-opted from community to community. Certainly. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And And like you said, it will often... The story, specifically with these bridges, will often change based on the location of the bridge. As I said, sometimes it's, you know, the original story was a bridge over water. But I have found bridges in Ohio where they are train trestles or it's just, you know, they're not necessarily over water. Because in the original story that I had heard, the baby is thrown off the bridge into the water. But some of the train ones have the child and the mother being hit by a train. So it does mutate to, in order to fit the location. We had another question in our chat room about spirit boxes. What are your thoughts on spirit boxes as, as a tool for investigating or even just communicating? Another great question. I love this chat room. Um, I'm on the fence with those because I think – we have had a few interesting responses from the spirit box. Um, but in general, you have to look at what a spirit box is. It's an AM FM receiver. So it is designed to pick up radio signals, actual radio signals. And so in order to be able to, some people will say that, Okay, well, if you've got it actually cycling through so quick, it's not going to be able to pick up, say, the disc jockey talking or something like that, which is true. But unfortunately, you're going to get bits of gibberish that your brain, because we don't like things that don't make sense, is going to fill in the gaps. So, you know, I'm always looking for if, even without a spirit box, if you ask a question and you say, is there anyone here? I'm looking for a response that says, yes, I am here, <laughs> and this is my name. Right. That never happens. But I'm looking for something that is no question. It's a direct response, and it's contextual. The joke I always give is that you, you run a spirit box, and you're like, is there anyone here? And you hear butter. And you're like, oh, that's, <laughs> that, that said butter. You know, my <laughs> Uncle Steve liked to eat butter, so right. that's Uncle Steve. You know, and it's you have to be careful with the idea of using a spirit box, because the the idea behind that is it is designed to pick up all sorts of stray signals that are out there and bring them through. So, I mean, we've, as I said, we do use them from time to time. Um, but what we are looking for is we will let that cycle through about 10 or 12 times so that we can get used to, okay, you know what, when it hits, making this up between 850 and 890 on the AM when it's scanning through there, it's picking up a male voice and we try to get ourselves used to what's actually coming through so that when we do hear something, we can be like, wait, that was something totally different and it's in a totally different range. Um, so they're, they're a good tool to use, but I, I, I think you just have to be cautious as to what they are capable of doing and what they're designed to do. Because my pushback with a lot of this equipment is when someone says it allows a ghost to do this, I always say, well, how do you know that? 
because we haven't really determined right. what a ghost is, let alone if it exists. So how do you have a piece of equipment that reacts to what a ghost is? <laughs> so I, I think a spirit box would fall into that. And it, it's very, it tends to fall into that category of the instant response, because we as a society, we want instantaneous answers. And so we go into it. And a lot of times with, a, say, a spirit box or even an obelisk, we're looking for something that is going to give us an instantaneous response almost on cue. And I wish ghosts really did work on, you know, operate on cue, but at least for me, they never do. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit stubborn when it comes to that. Um, taking this spirit box discussion a little further, though, uh, though did you watch any of um, the Prime show Hellier by any chance? I did. Yes, yes, I did. Did you happen to watch it all, some, just so I know? If... I watched, I think there's two seasons of Yeah, it? two seasons. Yeah, yeah, so I watched both of those. Okay, um, they they use a method with the spirit box that they've coined the Estes method out of um, the Stanley Hotel in Estes, Colorado, where uh, Carl yes. Pfeiffer spent a great deal of time and, and um, mm-hmm. can't, can't remember the other gentleman's name, but he was there as well. But either way, um, you know, and they and they use it a lot in this quote unquote television show where they uh they isolate the person who's listening to the spirit box and then it's somebody else asking the questions and um theoretically the person listening to the spirit box cannot hear the questions being asked so therefore they're less likely to come up with responses directly to those questions because they don't know what the questions are what did you what were your thoughts of watching that do you think that that was a legitimate uh way to improve what the results might be from a spirit box? In general, we have actually done that same type of experiment or procedure before. We didn't. Um, Sarah, one of our Ghost of Ohio members, actually joked that we, we didn't know it was called anything. <laughs> you know, it was kind <laughs> of like the blindfold thing, you know, where you're, you're taking these sort of noise-canceling headphones and you, you're, you're putting the spirit box directly into that so that that's all that they are hearing. And as you said, they're not hearing the outside. And then you are taking away, you're wearing a blindfold to take away sight. I mean, what right. intrigued me about that the first time that I had heard about it, it was a few years ago, um, prior to Hell You're Coming Out, was the idea that some people believe that if you take away one of your, your five senses, that the other four are heightened. Right. And so I thought that there was something interesting that if you're taking away your sight, are you able to pick up or hear more than you normally would? So that was what was intriguing to me. Um, specifically to the Hellier thing, I don't, again, going back to it was a sort of reality TV sort of thing. So there's yeah. no way of telling whether or not they were hearing the questions. So, you know, I'm always skeptical about things like that. But I will say that we, um, one of the more recent times that we used it was at a, let me see how I can make this a short sort of story. Um, we were at a, a, a library in Ohio where we had found that a, um, the, the, the original library and the first head librarian there had unfortunately uh, been murdered inside the building. And it was, it was documented. And it was further documented that her son, he was eight or 10 at the time, was there at the time. He survived. Um, but I did a little digging around on him and found that he had actually um, grown up to sort of become a, uh, 
1920s sort of vaudeville singer. And we got, I got, came up with this interesting idea that I did, I was able to track down records that he had done. And since my life revolves around music and ghosts, I have a, um, an old 1926 Victrola and got the recording, played it, him singing in and recorded it and then brought it there and said, uh, Lida, who was the librarian, I don't know if you're here, but we heard that, you know, what had happened is very tragic and sad, but we don't know if you know what happened to your son. He survived. He is fine. or he was fine. And he actually became a singer. And we would like to play some of your, his music for you. And we did. And we got some rather interesting results. Sorry for the long lead up. But we went back a second time and we were doing the experiment where uh, we had blindfolded Josh and put the headphones on him. And as he's sitting there, out of the blue, he says, where is the music? To which we were like, okay, where did that come from? And is that asking that they want to hear the music that we brought last time? And whether it was or whether we were trying to force fit that in there, I don't know. We did end up playing the music again, and we did get some unexplained activity based on that. So once again, it's something that you have to look at with anything. Are you force fitting things in there? I don't know. I don't know with Hellier if they were actually able to hear what the questions were. Um, but I, I, I think it is something worth exploring if for no other reason, as I said, are you taking away one of your senses? Are you there for heightening or making yourself more open by taking that one sense away? Hmm. We're running out of time quickly here. <laughs> it's going fast. It's unbelievable how fast the time is going. And I've got uh, so many more questions. Uh, I did have a couple more chat questions that I wanted to throw at you before we ran out of time. Um, sure. Uh, one of our chatters wants to know, you know, we talked about a lot of specific equipment based on what you thought of it or what you you know liked or disliked. But what do you usually use when you go on an investigation? What do you use as a regular uh, part of your toolkit? I have got a, a full set of like everything. It, it, it's it's ridiculous because it's like five sets of different handhelds. But the one um, more expensive thing that I use, which I, I tell people, if you're serious about it, it is totally worth the investment. It's called Vernier Lab Pro. And what it is, is Vernier Lab Pro is actually a bunch of remote sensors that are normally used for high school experiments. So like saying how when you put an ice cube into, you know, water, how fast does it, the temperature drop? And you can actually get hundreds of sensors that will do everything from an EMF to electrostatic electricity, um, all sorts of things. You can get ambient temperature. So basically what you do is you put, hook all these sensors up based on what the activity is, and you let them roll. They go right into a data logger. You can look at it on your laptop if you wanted to, but it will take readings every half a second. So you can literally track, and we have, we've put multiple, say, ambient temperature devices down a hallway where people say that they report, you know, a ghost walking by, and we have seen those trigger one right after the other. So it, it allows you to not walk around like I think I 
try to tell people I look cool, but I know I look foolish with the giant, <laughs> you know, photographer's vest is bulging with the 30 pieces of equipment or the big rig with the video camera on it. I kind of like to just set that up, set up a couple of video cameras and then sit on camera in front of the microphones and just use my own body. How do I feel about things going on? And then I'll sometimes use a, a digital voice recorder, sometimes a couple, but I'll just set it down and just talk. And I will talk to the ghost as if it were a friend because I realize that I'm a visitor there. So I don't command that it does something. I just introduce myself. And then what I normally say is, I'm really into history and I want to know the history of the building. And if you are here, you're part of that history. And I would love to hear your story if you'd like to tell me. It's that historical approach that I think some investigators overlook. And I think it's such an important part of what we're talking about. I, I think I think it's an integral part. And I think it is, to me, if someone, we'll go back to the Sleepy Holidays, but if somebody said they were walking out in the woods and they saw a headless guy go running by, on, I run by, but on a horse, they saw a headless ghost out in the woods. That's creepy. But if you can go back and then find historical documentation that says, yeah, a guy on a horse actually had his head shot off by a cannonball back there. That, to me, not only makes your story more credible, but it validates what we were talking about earlier, that that could mean that there's life after death. You know, so I, I think it's I think when people say they're ghost hunting, I think by and large, you're just going out to have a chill, you know, just scare each other, do something, which is totally fine. But to me, I want answers. I want documentation. I don't want to just say, I heard a scary noise. I wonder what it was. I want to rip apart that noise and listen to it 3,000 times and then find out whether or not something had actually happened there based on, you know, on historical documentation that could make it more credible and point towards the fact that it's paranormal. We um, In the few minutes we've got left, Jim, I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories that you've included in some of your books or your, the books you've contributed to. Give me a, a one or two of what you consider to be the more interesting cases that you either investigated yourself or uh, did some research on and reported on and wrote about it in one of your books. Yeah, I mean, most of I, I, the vast majority of stories that are in any of my books, I've actually visited the location because I think that's an integral part of being able to tell the story. And that's what a lot of my readers say they like is that I describe not only the look, but the smell and, you know, just what it's like to be standing there. Um, some of my favorites that, that just sort of jump out of me is in McConnellsville, Ohio, there's a place, the Twin City Opera House, which... We had been to several times, and it's just recently started to pop up on the ghost shows. But um, probably the strangest thing that we got is in the middle of the night, well, by that I mean like 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning, while there were only three of us in the building and we were all up sitting on the top of the catwalk, we did not hear it at the time, but there is clearly what was recorded on the microphone and the camera that were on the stage, a man singing. And he's singing hmm, 10 or 12 notes. It is clearly a man, and there was nobody else in the building at the time. Um, the Oliver House, which is in Toledo, Ohio, was fascinating to me because at one point, um, again, going along the idea with music, 
we picked up somebody whistling a tune um, that goes on for roughly 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And there is nobody in the area. Um, but I think my all-time favorite still has got to be the Thurber House in Columbus, Ohio. And that's just because to kind of tie together again that sort of idea of history and ghosts. Um, James Thurber was a, a, a famous author from Ohio, and he lived yeah. in Columbus, and he wrote the story The Night the Ghost Got In. And it was based on the house he was living in at the time, which is the Thurber House today. You can still go and take tours there. And the it talks about him encountering a ghost that ran around the table downstairs and then ran up the stairs at him. And for my book, Central Ohio Legends and Lore, I went to the Thurber house and said, you know, I, I remember reading this story as a kid. Did that really happen? And they showed me documentation that, yeah, Thurber really did have that ghost experience. And I went back and for the book, um, I'm sorry, for the short story, the night the ghost got in, the very first line is, the ghost that got into our house on the night of November 17th. And so I went back looking in the historical documentation thinking, I'm going to find the connection. And absolutely nothing happened on November 17th. <laughs> but the second paragraph of the night the ghost got in begins, they, meaning the footsteps, began about a quarter past one o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. at which point I thought, okay, maybe that's not the 17th. It's the 18th, 18th. right went back and looked in the historical records and found that in the early morning hours of November 18th, prior to uh, the Thurber House standing there, a Columbus uh, mental facility stood there, and in the early morning hours of November 18th, it burnt to the ground and people died. So that's become the thing that, okay, is that what he heard? Because there are sadly reports of patients on fire, unfortunately, running around. Oh, geez. And so it's like, was that what he heard? So, yeah, those are just some of the ones that I've I've covered over the years that I'm like, wow, I, I really think there's something going on there. Yeah, those are great. Those are great stories. And Ohio seems to have its real uh, more than its share of places like this. Is there something unique about Ohio or, or the history of Ohio that lends itself to uh, so many places like this? I think because, you know, it, it sounds cliched for me to say this, but Ohio is just a weird state. If you look at it, it looks weird. If you look north to south, you've got water, you've got lakes and the river. East to west, it's landlocked. You have the idea that, you know, so you have everything from prohibition. You've got the bootleggers. You've got a lot of gangsters coming through here back and forth between Indiana and the East Coast going back and forth. You've got a lot of uh, the gangsters that actually met their demise here, Pretty Boy Floyd. There is also a, a whole bunch of um, what they often refer to as Indian mounds, but they actually predate that. They're the Adena culture. Um, they're going back hundreds of thousands. I mean, they don't even know who, what the Adena culture was right, yeah. or what they use these mounds for. There is a plethora of these bizarre effigy things that you can't tell what they are uh, until you're way up in the air. Um, you know, there's the serpent mount, which is a giant snake but from the ground, looks like yeah. absolutely nothing. And then, of course, you've got Wright Pat, which is supposedly where, you know, Hangar 18 and every sort of alien from Roswell on is living. So, yeah, it's just 
this amalgam of just all this weirdness where I, it feels like I've come home you know, from the Hudson <laughs> Islands to here. But I think most of all, I, I've covered ghost stories and folklore from other states. And I think one of the biggest things that makes Ohio so weird is they are willing to share their stories. Right. You know, there is this, they're, they're kind of weird and they're proud to be weird, where if you reach, go to other states, they're kind of still very, they keep their stories close to the vest. People in Ohio are weird and they have no problem sharing their weird stories with people. Um, we're going to try to squeeze in the much neglected phone calls here. I want to at least take one. Um, who do we have on the phone with us? Scooter. Hey, Scooter. Welcome to the program, buddy. Hey. What's on your mind? Hey. Hey, uh, I'd love to talk to your guest here because uh, I live in Ohio and I've heard a lot of the stories, and I just wanted to, I wanted to share a few with him—not stories, but particular haunts if he's heard of them. The uh, uh, the Wheatlers Pass, the uh, headless conductor near Finley looking for his head, and I'll be sure of that yes. one. Yep, yep, I've heard of that one. Yep, and. Uh, about the cemetery in Maslin, Ohio, it's they used to be where they had buried the plague, people that died from the plague, and then they dug all the bodies up and moved them to another cemetery, supposedly, and then they built a, uh, some houses there, and now there's been lots of reports, in the, even in the local paper, of uh, some people having uh, 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 ghostly encounters because they're not sure that all the bodies were dug up and moved. It's called Union Cemetery. Heard, I've not heard of that one, but that one actually sounds very familiar to, I don't remember the actual case, but it was the basis for um, the movie Poltergeist, the idea of um, moving the headstones and not moving the bodies. But I, I wasn't right. aware of one in Massillon. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Union Cemetery. It's uh, made the local paper. Usually uh, every Halloween they run an article or something, but... Uh, yeah, it's uh, if you go down Four Street Mountain, the sign is still there. It says Union Cemetery, but it's not there anymore. It's just a sign, and there's all houses there. But uh, oh, and then the, the the Rogues Hollow, of course, that's got the uh, Crybaby Bridge story there. I've heard that for years and years. And uh, yeah, yeah, if, yeah, Rogues Hollow is a great. There is a um, and actually an old book that was put out that kind of goes through a, a lot of the different legends, including the. Uh, the Cryberry Bridge in Rogues Hollow, and that had you heard the one in Rogues Hollow where the it's actually the devil who uh, rides around there on horseback <laughs> supposedly Ooh. late at night. Whoa! There's, when I was in high school, it was, was supposedly the one where if you parked your car in a certain spot, then this uh, shadow figure came towards your vehicle, and if you did start your car quick enough, he'd get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called the parking lot attendant. He's there to collect ten bucks. <laughs> hey scooter we got to go thanks for uh sharing those stories with us and thanks for the phone call appreciate it no problem thank you Great guess. thank you all right um yeah we we are out of time here jim uh, but before we go where can people get a hold of your books and which of the many do you recommend people start with if they're unfamiliar with your work yeah you can pick um you can probably pick them up if you just type a weird willis into a search engine you could find them all over the easiest is probably amazon um if you're into just the general weirdness I would start with uh, Weird Ohio if you're in Ohio. Um, if you're into ghost legends, uh, the Big Book of Ohio Ghost Stories is a good place. Those are those have a lot of the legends in it. But if you're into the ghost hunting aspect of it as well as the history, sort of my uh, 
what people refer to as my Sergeant Pepper. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> is um, Ohio's historic haunts because that has me um, digging into the history of 21 historic buildings in Ohio that are said to be haunted, and then I get locked in the building. Uh, overnight to oh, see if cool. I encounter anything. Cool. Well, um, I'm already convinced we've got to have you on a little more regularly. Like I said, I don't remember when the last time was. It was a few months or maybe even as many as like seven or eight months ago. But uh, you always have some great stories. I love your perspective on the paranormal, and we certainly want to have you back. It is my pleasure. You say the word, and I will be here. This is always a, a fun time. Terrific. Have a great night. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon, Jim. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.